Hey, good morning. My name is David. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. Very good to be here this morning. Um, first off, baptism. Uh, Ginger, thank you so much for sharing your story and uh, what baptism meant to you and and how that journey happened for you. And uh, I just encourage you, 75, right? She's like, um, and she didn't drown. You know, it, it was like she was in good hands. Um, so it, it's, it, it's not too old to declare that faith and to step into the rivers of baptism. So I encourage you, if you haven't been baptized and you have been just sort of thinking about that, is that you take that step, go out, you know, talk to the folks at the tables out there, uh, text us, email us, write a note on the welcome card, let us know that you're thinking about it, and we would love to talk with you about that. Uh, it's going to be a great day. And the water was cold for Ginger, but it's going to be warm by next week. Anyway, so it's, it's good. Um, so um, I'm, sure, I'm sure of that. Hey, um, so many of you have expressed, uh, you know, um, love uh, towards me and, and missing me, and I appreciate that. And like, where you been? You know, uh, so a couple weeks ago, I was at my dad's memorial service in Idaho. Um, I know many of you are praying for that. It was a great uh, time of celebration, obviously hard as well as good. And then last week, I was uh, down in Eldorado Hills preaching at Sun Hills Church. And um, and uh, I'm an encourager, mentor, uh, coach for uh uh, for Eric Grinder, who is uh, the newer pastor there, and so uh, it was giving him a little bit of a break and the opportunity to to meet with them. So that's where I was. So, uh, but it's great to great to be back. So let let me pray for us, all right, as we uh, prepare to go into God's word today. Jesus, thank you that we can be together today. Thank you so much for uh, that um, humidity, precipitation in the air, the coolness. Um, the promise of a changed season and changing season. And Lord, thank you for this community of faith, for us today, gathered together here or um, online, um, to learn from you, to grow from your Spirit's work in our life. We pray that we would have the ears to hear, the courage to embrace what you teach us today. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Can we get along? Now, um, who, whom, whom don't you get along with? Somebody just pointed at me. I can't believe that, right? <laughs> there are some people that, you know, like to stir things up, pot stirs. There's probably, you know, somebody came to mind. That there, there's some conflict, there's some difficulty, there's some challenge with. I told you at the beginning of the series, my, series, my uh, Australia story of walking down the street when I was, you know, uh, in, my, in my 20s studying in Australia and smiled at somebody and they said, don't smile at me, you're a Christian. It's like, what? You know, that's a sort of a crazy experience that I had. Um, and I also remember, you know, this is a, a, a number of years back, I've had a neighbor and and um, uh, my dogs had gotten out. I try to be very mindful of my dogs staying in the yard and, you know, fence yard and everything like that. But got out and did their little doo-doo job on his lawn, of which he was not impressed with, which I totally understand. But his response was to gather it up and throw it down our driveway, which I was like, really? Well, I think, you know, um, also what um, later ticked him off is, is that we had this particular dog that liked to jump over the five-foot, you know, cyclone fence into the golf course. And he, the dog actually jumped over the fence and grabbed his golf ball and jumped back over our fence. 
And it was a Pro V1, which is probably like a 4 or $5 ball, right? So he was pretty ticked off about that, of which I bought him a whole box of balls. So I was like, you know, come on, dude, let's, you know, let's just get along, right? But those have been sort of unusual ex- experiences. I, I, I mostly get along with people. But we live in a culture, increasingly, where we live in high conflict, that we just don't, and, and also just culturally as Americans, we just don't like people telling us what to do, right? <laughs> no matter who it is. Like we just, we, there's something within us that rebels a little bit against that. Now, most of the people that I don't get along with, most of the people that I have a problem with, this is what I've come to understand and, and realize, they mostly don't know, Right? So they're taking up mental and emotional real estate within my being, and they don't know, and they really don't care. You know what? The, the politicians that, that I disagree with, that irritate me, they have no clue that I even exist. And so it's affecting me much more than it's affecting them. When I began the series, I, I set this series up as we've been looking at First Peter with this statement that in a world that increasingly lives in ways that are contrary to what God has revealed in Scripture as the best life, how are we supposed to live? How are we supposed to share our faith when people are more prone to yell than to listen? And I also said um, at the beginning of this uh, series is that If I'm doing my job, and if Scripture is doing its job, at some point, we're going to get uncomfortable or maybe even offended. I will warn you that that might be today. Okay? So, I want to go back, in order to go forward, to a passage that that Pastor Steve addressed last week, in order to go into the passage that we're going to look at today. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open it up to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is where we are in, in, in this book, in this series. And we're in chapter 2, and I want to begin by just reading verses 11 and 12 first. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And this is where Peter writes, and he says, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior, and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Now, when we look at Peter's words to that dispersed church going on, we are reminded, as he reminded us from the very beginning, from verse 1 and 2 of his letter that he wrote, that we are not home yet, that this is not our home, that the world that we live in, this, this place and this time that we occupy is a temporary residence, but it is not a permanent residence. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners. And he wasn't talking about, you know, that they were born in another country and now they lived in a new country, or they were born in another town or city and now they're living in a new town or city. He's talking about the spiritual state that they are in, and God continues to speak to us this morning about the spiritual state that you and I are in, that we are temporary residents and foreigners. 
And it's a bit of a perspective, okay, to think about sort of the bigger picture, the bigger context, right? To think that the first people who heard Peter's letter, which is probably the way that they were introduced to it because most people are illiterate, and so this was a circular letter that would have been written, and the person who could read and write read it aloud in the gathering of the church. And so they would have heard these words first, that they have been physically dead for 2,000 years. As we are reading it, as we are listening to it today, the people who first heard it and read it, those foreigners, they've been dead for 2,000 years physically, but they have been enjoying eternity for 2,000 years. But as we sit here today, we also know and realize this is the life that we get to live. Like it was the life that they had to live. So the question is, is it, so how do we live? How do we live? And these verses 11 and 12 set the stage for what we're going to look at next. And essentially what Peter is telling his first hearers, the first readers, is you need to live holy. Now, let me, let me define that a little bit. See, oftentimes when, when you hear that, or when I hear that, what I equate, holiness equals perfection. So it's like, okay, if I'm to be holy, then I have to be perfect. And so Pastor David told me this morning, I need to be perfect. I know I'm not perfect, and the people who live with me definitely know I'm not perfect, so I just sort of give up now. That's not what holiness means. Holiness, you know, technically, the, the term, the definition of it means to be set apart. Okay, set apart for a purpose. And holiness is to increasingly have the character of God in our life. So it's, it's to be set apart for a purpose that God has a plan for us. He has a purpose for us. And his grace and his mercy cover our journey of having more and more of the character of God in our life. It's not about being perfect. Don't give up. Don't give up, well, I can't be perfect, so I'll just be me. Okay? Now, I'm sure that you're a wonderful person. But there is more wonderful to come if you will submit your life to Jesus. If you will be set apart. If you will be holy. And so, holiness equals, in the context of what we've been talking about, Jesus first in our life. It's putting Jesus first in our life. To be set apart, having that character of God, and the, and the purpose and the character of Jesus come first inside of us, and then the purposes and character of Jesus, they flow out of us. The, the person that this uh, comes to my mind in this is that if you remember in the uh, Gospels, there's a character called John the Baptist whose job it was, it was to prepare the way for Jesus. He was a prophet and to point people to Jesus, not to himself. And he did a really good job at that. So good that his disciples started leaving him and going to Jesus. And some of his disciples were jealous and were concerned and said to John, hey, our friends are going to Jesus. They're not, they're not sticking with us. What's going on? You should do something, John. And John says this. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's a Jesus' first life. He must increase, and as Jesus increases, I decrease. 
So we live holy on the inside. Okay, so living holy. So how are we to live? We live holy on the inside. And this is how Peter defines it. He says, keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your souls. Right? There is a war, there's a spiritual battle going on for your soul. And I think that we live in a time and in a culture where that is even more exaggerated, it, it feels like. That, that how the, the options and the, the, um, the opportunities that exist and the ease within which those exist to, for us wage war in those choices and decisions. It's very difficult. And, and, and so one of the things we talk about here at Cold Springs Church is growing young, of, of helping all of us, but particularly the next generation, to grow up with a lifelong faith. And so we have this real focus within our children's ministry, within our youth ministry, within our young adults ministry, because our passion and desire is to help the next generation to grow up within a life with a lifelong faith. And I will tell you that it is extraordinarily difficult for a young person to grow up with a lifelong faith in the world today. I think much more so than when I was young. And that's what Peter's talking about. Keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. And when we do that, when we live wholly on the inside, it will guard our heart, our mind, and our soul, and it brings honor to God. So put Jesus first within on the inside. And then also live wholly on the outside. Be careful, Peter continues, he says, be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Now, I think it's really important to understand here and to notice here that Peter puts a now and a way future impact of the way that you live. Did you notice that? It says, one, is that if you live with Jesus first, with holiness on the outside, that even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior. So that's an in-the-moment type of thing. And what's going to happen is they will give honor to God, not now, but when God judges the world. It's like, oh, David Cook wasn't that bad of a dude. He actually had it right. And you're going to want to say, I told you so. No, you're not. You know, because you're going to be totally holy at that point. But I probably would. So what's going to happen there is, is that when you live holy on the outside, that is going to guard your witness and your reputation. How we live matters to God and matters to the people that we live amongst. That's what Peter is saying. And that's what he's setting up here. And if we're a Christian, our first allegiance, if you are a follower of Jesus, our first allegiance is to the kingdom of God. And if our first allegiance is to the kingdom of God, then our first priority is to live in a way that will, one, point people to the kingdom of God. Live in a way that will point people to the kingdom of God and two, not distract others from pursuing the kingdom of God. We're going to live in such a way that points people and doesn't distract people from the kingdom of God. So, how do we live out our faith then? And this is where Peter gets down to the brass tacks. 
If you continue in your Bibles, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, as we live out our faith, he says, okay, this is how you live out your faith in the midst of the authority structures you find yourself in the midst of. And here's the thing. Did you know that every person is under authority in some way? We all, we all that's, that's how, what keeps the world from going into complete chaos, is, is that there are authority structures that exist. And there are no perfect authority structures that exist. There are better and there are worse. There are evil and there are good, but there are no perfect. And Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. For this is the will of God. That's a powerful statement. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Again, let me remind you of the historical context. is that This is the, the Roman government that is over the people that Peter is writing to and over Peter himself. And the Roman government... They're the ones who came up with crucifixion as a way to kill people, as a maximum way to make people suffer. There was a, when, when you read about the Roman you know, rule, I mean, there was a lot of evil that went on in this. There was, it was not a democracy. There was no vote. There was the emperor, and what the emperor said, and what he, those he empowered said was rule of law. And it could change upon the mood of those in power. And yet, Peter says these amazing words. That the original audience that this was written to were people who didn't have any power. They didn't have any rights. They didn't have any status. And yet, Peter writes these words of submission. So why did Peter write this? Why did Peter write these things, because if, when you look at it logically, they didn't have any choice but to submit, right? I mean, it wasn't like that they could rise up and say, we are going to reform the Roman government, right? We're going to form our own party. You know what happens when you do that? You die. So why would Peter even talk about this, of submission? Well, well, the reason he's talking about this is that because the people he's writing to had heard and received the radical message of the kingdom of God. They had embraced and understood the greatness of the grace and the mercy of God. Let me read to you what, how Paul describes this in, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. He says, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. Listen to this. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. You are the people of God. 
You are the most important and powerful people in the universe because of your faith in Jesus. Your stature and status in life has been radically changed. It is not defined by the society that you live in. It is not defined by your vocation, by the color of your skin, by the language that you speak, by the geography that you have. It is defined by Jesus Christ, and you are a child of God, and there is nothing more free, free-giving, nothing more powerful than that that you can experience. And if you're, a, and if you're in the low part of the society and you hear that message, you're like, wow, I'm special. I don't have to obey anybody because I have freedom. There is a radical freedom that's found in Christ. And yet, Peter understands that we live in the tension of the now and the not yet. And part of what Peter is doing is he's preaching submission in order to prevent the government from turning against the church as well as to encourage others to follow Christ through the church. He's saying, hey, how we live, we are free in Christ, but how we live in the world around us affects the way that people engage with this message and it also affects how this world that we live in engages with us. Now, in reading this, you think, well, okay, submission is like, I have to submit. Does it, is this saying that I just I have to submit to everything, that the government, the rulers, the governors, the emperor, the king, the president, the congress, whatever, supreme court, whatever they say, I have to go along with. See, that's part of the thing of, of, of understanding contextualization is that, that we live in a different time, and so how do we engage? And we have the freedom to be able to vote. In fact, we have uh, Marilyn Schaefer is, it has a table out there, and if you haven't registered to vote, we want you to register to vote because that's one of our freedoms. That's one of our, our ways that we speak into the world today. We have those rights, that we can, we can have a voice in, in the world, and for the most part, we don't have to worry about losing our life, ending up in prison because we have spoken for truth or for the purposes of God in the world. And so we have that. But here's the thing that we also have to understand is, is that sometimes we have to obey because we are following God first. And on such occasions, when we disobey, there are consequences that we suffer. And for the sake of, we suffer those consequences for the sake of God in order to bring the message of God's kingdom to others. So we say, no, we're not going to do that. Now, again, you know, this is a challenging message because we live in a, in a time and in a culture of increasing incivility. Did you know that? Have you, anybody noticed that? Is that we are we the, the almost the the um, given is is that you'll be uncivil towards one another rather than civil. And I want to talk about two particular areas. One is in politics. And in politics, this is a movement that has been happening for quite some time, but has elevated in its intensity 
within, I think, within the last six, eight years. And that intensity is in attacking people over issues. And so anybody is fair game. I remember um, when I was young, I think it was the day that um, I hit one of our family's cars with another one of our family's cars and sort of took the back door off of a, um, I think it was like a 62 coupe with the Suburban. My dad was not happy. Let's just say that. And so, and, um, and I remember, though, at the end of that day that my dad said, I didn't think that I could laugh or smile today, but then I read um, that uh, President Jimmy Carter said, I appreciate it when people wave at me. I just wish they would do it with all five fingers. <laughs> Some of you get that. And, he, and that was the thing that made him laugh on a very bad day. So this idea of, you know, sort of expressing ourselves to, particularly to those in the uh, political world, has been around for a very long time. However, in the world we live today, it is not subtle at all. And there are so many more avenues of t-shirts and bumper stickers and flags and banners and words. And as followers of Jesus Christ, Scripture makes it very clear that if we follow Jesus, that those options of dissatisfaction are not open to us. That they dishonor God and they dishonor our witness in the world. Let me also talk about in education. I grew up in a teacher's home. My mother taught for 25 years in the public school system. I remember kids complaining about my mom and the grade they gave. I was like, don't talk to me, talk to her, right? You know, it's like, I didn't give you the grade. I now also live in a teacher's home. My wife, she teaches um, at Markham School. and, um, And I have many of you are within the education field. And teachers and administrators. And I think during the COVID time, the political world and the education world have been the two most challenging places to be able to have to to work. Because the same incivility that we see within the political world has gone into our education world and how teachers and administrators have been engaged with. That there's this sense of attacking people. And, and, and without an understanding is that, you know, because I, I have these, these conversations with teachers, administrators, and particularly administrators, is that administrators have their, their convictions and they have their views and they have their understandings, but they're also people under authority. And the, that authority has control and determination. And they are also people of authority. That is a challenging place to be. And yet, there is an attack that that happens without that, that attacks people versus engages in conversation with people. That's an incivility. 
you know, so let me give you the, the sort of the biblical basis of why I say, as Christians, we do not have the right to engage in that form of protest. Whether it's, a, again, a social media post, whether it's a t-shirt, a banner, a bumper sticker, whether it's an implied or explicit. Paul says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building others up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's a biblical command of how we engage in relationship. And it's not just in a one-on-one. I think it is in a societal relationship as well. Of the standard, the holiness, the set-apartness that we are called to live in. Remember, two things that Peter begins with in verse 11 and 12. Why are we here? How are we to, to live? To point others to the kingdom, and we don't distract others from pursuing the kingdom. So within our administration, you know, as, as we live un- under authority, is, is that we keep those things in mind. Then Peter goes on in the next section, he says, okay, how do we do this in relationships with others, in our relationships? In 1 Peter 2, verses 18 through 20, let me read. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer it for you, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, within some of your translations, what you'll see here is, is it uses servants here, but it will use the word slaves. It is impossible, as Americans, with our evil history of slavery for 200 years in this country to not think of modern slavery when we hear that word slave. And particularly if you are a person who has been impacted by that personally through your ancestors being slaves. When you read that word and you read that in scripture and then you also realize is that within our culture, within American culture and also within European culture, which exercise slavery as well, is is that these were the scriptures that were used to perpetuate slavery and to justify it from a biblical basis. And you're going, what? I think it's important to acknowledge that where our mind goes. But we also have to understand that when Peter is writing these words, he is not talking about new world slavery as we have experienced here in the United States. That he's talking about first century slavery that was a, a different form of relationship or I think also a different form of evil, that it was morally still suspect. But it wasn't what we experienced. And central features that distinguish um, the, the first century slavery would be this, okay? Um, so racial factors played no role in the, the slavery that Peter was talking about. So it wasn't based upon a, a color of somebody's skin or where they were from geographically. In fact, um, education was greatly encouraged, and some slaves were better educated than their owners. And that enhanced a slave's value within 
that system. And many slaves carried out sensitive and highly responsible social functions, and slaves could own property. In fact, slaves could own other slaves within Peter's time. And their religious and cultural traditions were the same as those of the freeborn. They weren't separate or different. And there wasn't any laws that prohibited public assembly of slaves. And here's one of the really important things as well, is that the majority of urban and domestic slaves could legitimately anticipate that they were being emancipated by the age of 30, that they weren't going to be a slave after the age of 30. So another way that has been described as indentured servanthood is, is that you were a slave to a master in order to, you know, economics were, were a part of this. But it wasn't based upon that you are an inferior person or that you had an inferior race and that there was an end to it and you could earn actually your freedom. Now, as I said before, it was still a morally inferior system, but it wasn't the system that we're familiar with within our culture. And so Peter is talking into this, and he's talking into this, and how we can take this today is, is that it was a morally inferior system, but we live in systems that are morally inferior. Have you noticed that? There are no systems that are morally perfect. So how do we live? That we have to understand is that we are all under authority, and that authority creates creates order in the world and prohibits chaos. And when, when people don't live under authority, when chaos, when there are no rules, we've seen that. I mean, here on the West Coast, you know, in Portland, in, in Seattle, we saw that in our nation's capital. But what happens when order is t- thrown out and chaos ensues. So when Peter addresses the slaves, the servants, he's saying, you are a person under submission to authority. You acknowledge that authority, and you submit under it. And you may even suffer under it. I remember, um, I remember a song uh, when I was a kid growing up in Sunday school uh, of how you spell joy. Anybody remember the joy song in Sunday school? Jesus, others, and you. What a wonderful way to spell joy. Anybody with me? Okay, there's a couple. Thank you very much. Okay, they are Sunday school teachers, by the way. So, um, and so Jesus, others, and you. What a wonderful way to spell joy. And And what it was communicating is is like the kingdom life is other focused. That's what Peter is saying, is that wherever you find yourself, look to the other person. Be other focused. Jesus, others, and you. In that, there is blessing. Point others to the kingdom and don't distract others from pursuing the kingdom. It's Jesus first. So Peter ends with this very powerful example. So it's like, okay, do this. You're like, I don't want to do that. I don't like that. I don't like submitting to government authorities. I don't like submitting, you know, to my boss. You know, have you, have you met my boss? They're a jerk. 
She didn't have to do that. And so Peter ends this section of this idea of submission, and he points this back to Jesus. Look at verses 21 through 25. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Now, it doesn't get much clearer than that, my brothers and sisters. (laughs) This is not a suggestion. The life of Jesus was a redemptive life, but it was also a life of example for us of how we live in the world today. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was perfect. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And what Peter ends with is this. He lives with the cross-centered, focused life. Do you ever wonder why churches and many Christians have the cross so central? I mean, look, you know, right behind me, right? There it is, the cross. I mean, it become, it's become so common. You probably, you know, didn't notice it maybe today until I said, hey, there's a cross behind me right there. This building, just I encourage you at some point, just sort of take some time to notice all the crosses throughout the architecture of this building. It's central to this building because it's central to the Christian faith. Again, I will uh, repeat what um, Scott McKnight said in his commentary. He says, sometimes Christians find that they must disobey, and on such occasions they must suffer the consequences for the sake of God in the light of God's will in order to bring the message of God's kingdom to others. And living the cross-centered life is to live a life that involves suffering. We are not greater than our Lord. We are not greater than the one that we follow. And to the world, suffering is to be avoided at all costs. Have you noticed that? And I sort of like that idea. i got to be honest with you. My personality is sort of like, yeah, that seems like a really good idea. Let's maximize pleasure, minimize pain. Who doesn't want to do that? But to the Christian, suffering is redemptive. To the follower of Jesus, suffering is redemptive. It is not the end. Suffering is not the end. It is the means by which we experience the greater and the deeper things of God. It's only through suffering. If, you're, if you are in a marriage that is in conflict, if you want to get into health, and if you want to get into a place of healing, you have to go through suffering. You can't go around it. 
If you want to be a good parent to your children, you have to go through suffering. You can't go around it. If you want to be a good citizen in the United States, if you want to be a good citizen in the world, if you want to be a good citizen in California, you have to go through suffering. You can't go around it as a follower of Jesus. But it is in that suffering that we experience the greater and the deeper things of God because in the, in the purview of God, in the, in the ways of Jesus, suffering is not the end. It's not a loss. It's a gain. And not least of all, our salvation. So we live with Jesus' example. Anybody remember that WWJD, you know, uh, era of Christianity? What would Jesus do? You know, bracelets, you know, everything. It sort of eclipsed the cross and all that stu- type of thing. What would Jesus do? Right? It's like, so say, ask yourself, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Here's a, I have a couple other uh, of four, sort of four-letter things that I would put out to you as you seek to live in the world today. And it would be WJDT. Would Jesus do that? Would Jesus do that? It's just to ask that question. Would Jesus do that? Or DJDT. Did Jesus do that? In the world that we live in, 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 in power politics, and in, in, in the midst of wh- where things that we disagree with or evil might be being perpetuated, did Jesus do that? Because Peter tells us that Jesus is our example and that he went through things much worse than we did. And he was victorious. Here's a, here's a clue, I would say, for us of whether we are living well or not well in this world that we live in. And it would be this. Are you a person who is living for or against? If you ask your friends and your family and say, hey, you know what, do you think I'm a person who is for stuff or against stuff? It might be an interesting, you know, lunchtime conversation. And here's what I would say to you is, is that you should be a person who is living for and known for what you live for, not against. We had this uh, thing called For Eldo Co., which was that whole effort here that we started. is like we want Cold Springs Church to be known for what we are for in our community. And we started highlighting businesses. We highlighting good and highlighting things because we were, we were for our community. We want the blessings of God within our community. Are you known more for what you are for or against? Are the things that you are for what you want or are they what God wants? And are the things that you are for being pursued in the ways that point people to the kingdom of God and don't distract people from the kingdom of God? So here's some questions to consider as we um, end today. Where are you struggling to live a Jesus first life? Where is, the, where is that place of tension? Is like, eh, Jesus really first in this? Yeah, Jesus first in that. Second, how does living holy on the inside help to live holy on the outside? If you're having a hard time living holy on the outside, take a look at the inside. What are you pursuing in your transformational journey of being set apart? How can you live in such a way that those who don't follow Jesus have a better chance of experiencing him through your example.
See, because as Jesus was our example, we are examples of people around us. As somebody once said, is, is that you are the only Bible that some people are going to read. You're the only Bible that some people are going to read. And what are the example of Jesus? Do you want or do you need to emulate? Do you need to show more in your life? These are the things. These are easy questions, right? It's like, I want the easy Christian life. You heard a wrong message somewhere. That's why we need each other. That's why we need community. That's why we need to encourage one another. Well, it's still called today. Because the world we live in is a challenge. And pursuing Jesus is a challenge. But the suffering that we go through brings about the purposes of God in your life and our life. So we push forward with joy. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that as we are a people who long to be holy, that we long to be set apart, that people would, would see you through us. And Jesus, I pray that we would be a community that has your kingdom first, that has you, Jesus, first. So that the, the conversations and the disagreements and, and the, the challenges that we face that are legitimate about how to live, how best to speak into our world, that we would do those in such a way that would bring honor and glory to you. And the people would look at us and they would see you. The people would look to us and they would find you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.